welcome to Whistleblowers. My name's Greg Kerr. Episode 16 in our 2020 series. Today, I'm a little bit nervous as we're going to delve into the Cannibal Club. both in Australia and international. Listeners with faint constitutions may wish to turn off now as we take you into the real-life story of cannibalism in Australia and elsewhere. Here's a little taste. Most lovers' quarrels end with an apology. But for Catherine Mary Knight, murder and mutilation were the end result. Not only did this Australian abattoir worker slash her lover with a butcher's knife 37 times in February 2000, she then chopped him up cooked him and prepared to serve him to his own children. Good morning, Jennifer Stone. Uh, How are you? I'm very good on the eve of Halloween. On the eve of Halloween and we're playing the delightful Johann Sebastian Bach music that people of the Netflix series Hannibal would know. Hannibal the Cannibal. So I'm a little bit shocked. I'm a little bit nervous. You've come in this morning. We're going to talk about all things cannibal. And uh, where would you like to start? Would you like to start with Catherine Knight or will we talk about the Cannibal Club? Maybe the Cannibal Club. Mm. Maybe we start at the beginning. Mm. The Cannibal Club in King's Cross was something that I was writing about for years, but I didn't realise that it was... I knew it was organised crime, Mm. but I didn't realise that it was affecting so many people. Mm. Mm. So, uh, you know, we have the missing persons. So in 2019, there were 10,212 reported missing persons. That's 28 missing persons every day but only 1% go to long-term. So in June 2020, there have been a total of 3,430 reports of missing persons, with 62 persons currently outstanding. And when you start to think about, you know, the number of children that go missing, and we've delved deeply on William Terrell, but we have Tegan Lane, who went missing as a three-year-old, we have around the world Madeline McCain. She was a three year Tegan Lane was three days old. William Terrell was three years old. Um, Madeline McCain was three years old. But then we have further as we go through is Helen Capetus. She went missing as a 10-year-old. So cannibalism is 
no stranger to Australian shores and there are stories from the early days of Australia's modern history of the Palmer River goldfields in North Queensland near Cookstown and stories of the Chinese uh, gold diggers um, being uh, found murdered, mutilated and even eaten by the cannibal tribes up that way. We've also heard about similar stories from Papua New Guinea via 60 Minutes stories and over the decades, over the centuries, it's developed in Australia but as Jennifer will tell you this morning, it's very much underground in Australia whereby in other countries it's very much out in the open. So in Australia, uh, back in 1863, there was a club formed called the Cannibal Club. It was in Victoria, Australia, and it was associated with the Anthropological Society. Uh, It was founded by a Sir Richard Francis and James Hunt. The club met in Bartoloni's dining rooms near Fleet Street. Its official symbol was a mace carved to look like an African head gnawing on a human thigh bone. The club's name is thought to derive from Burton's interest in cannibalism, which he regretted that he never witnessed on his travels. Group members included Richard Monckton Milnes, Charles Bradlaugh, Thomas Burnchy, and many others who are considered academics of their time. In his biography of Burton, Dane Kennedy suggests that the very name of the new club signalled the determination of its organisers to create an atmosphere where subjects deemed deviant by society could receive an open airing and to liberate its participants from the sober scientific etiquette that govern the Anthropological Society. So very much in the dark in Australia, but Jennifer, you came in this morning to talk about the Cannibal Club. What's uh, this all about? Well, last year I was asked by somebody had I made the links to the Cannibal Club in America. And I thought, the Cannibal Club in America? The guy even told me there's a website online and I saved, once I found it, I saved all the pictures. I saved all the, the files, you know, each page of the website because I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how open it was and how America was actually issuing licence for human meat to be sold. So I, I had worked on the drug network here and linked the murders in. Then I had linked into the adrenochrome. So they frighten someone to the adrenochrome that they harvest. And in many of the children that get found that have been put into cages and things like that in the underground world, in the um, drug network, this adrenochrome is worth a lot of money. And that's it's basically all about the money. So you start to see that, you know, this cannibal club that was actually alive and well in America could be the same sort of thing on the underground here. Very interesting. And you've already named a couple of uh, classic cases. You mentioned uh, a cold case uh, to do with a Cheryl Grimmer story. Yes. 
Cheryl Grimmer went missing from Wollongong, from a beach. Um, her brothers had taken her into the men's toilets to get changed whilst they were at the beach. And when they went back to their mother, they said Cheryl was still in the toilets. Um, now, it was interesting that the mother didn't take her. And if you go through the crimes, um, you know, this was before children went missing, except the Beaumont children had gone missing from a beach in 1966. So that was before um, Cheryl Grimmer. So she came out of the toilets. People actually saw her talking to a man in a car park. And then the coroner declared she was dead within hours. But they had um, a lock of hair turned up. They had a note to say that the person wanted $10,000 for her to be returned. But then that's all that seems to happen. The police dismiss it as a hoax. The same thing happened to the Beaumont children, that they received a letter demanding money and then the police dismissed it as a hoax. They even dismissed when the father of the Beaumont children went to report it. And that is a common thing here in Australia, that people say, well, you know, I was reporting my child missing, but the police were dismissing me. And that's where, you know, we used to just have missing persons because there's no evidence of them being dead, that there's no murder police, homicide, going to investigate until it gets deemed a cold case. So it doesn't get further investigated unless there's some sort of uh, public outcry or media coverage. This is what we heard uh, in the Cheryl uh, Grimmer case. There we go. We're, well, we're back. Well, 50 years after the disappearance of Wollongong toddler Cheryl Grimmer, police today posted a $1 million reward to catch her killer. Her family still searching for answers and today returned to where she was last seen. 50 years almost to the hour since Cheryl Grimmer was abducted at Ferry Meadow Beach. Her brother's still desperate to know what happened to their bubbly, cheeky three-year-old sister. I think we know who. I think I know how. I just need to know why now. Wearing royal blue was a tribute to Cheryl's swimming costume that day. Family, friends, even strangers walked solemnly from the spot she's believed to be buried to the place she was kidnapped. A plaque was unveiled, a nice gesture, but small consolation for a family full of anguish. Give us a little bit of our life back. When you took Cheryl... You might as well have taken all of us. A recent breakthrough ended when the main suspect's confession was ruled inadmissible. And hopefully the uh, DPP and the Attorney-General come to some um, way of getting this back in the court. Hoping to unearth new information, police today increased the reward to $1 million. There's people out there with a secret that they can come forward and we'll be able to act upon them. The $1 million reward is the last chance police and the family have of knowing exactly what happened to Cheryl half a century ago. Since she was taken from this Ferry Meadow toilet block, homicide detectives have simply run out of options, but her brothers still hold out hope. Yeah, we need justice, but it will come. Tom Saker, 7 News. So it's a sad story, and there's many of them, mm. and... Mm. Uh, 
you reckon it's all about the uh, reward money and police are saying this is the last chance? Well, the reward money will be linked to finding a bones because that's what it is for William Terrell. And remember, William Terrell's million dollars was done five years ago and he's been missing six. So missing Cheryl Grimmer I started working on um, just because she was one that was missing. Uh, So I had linked to a pink triangle gang and this was interesting that Glenn McNamara linking to Roger Rogerson had linked to a pink triangle gang and the pink triangle gang I was working on some call it that, but the pink is the link to the pink pussycat club, which will hold the evidence. The pink of the Pope of the Seeing Eye Nomad Nights. And you mentioned uh, this case of the missing girl, Cheryl Grimmer, took place in Wollongong and in that area at that particular time, you're talking about the pink triangle gang, um, there was... Uh, some convictions or some arrests made and a large ring of uh, men uh, arrested and convicted uh, not only into pedophilia but into taking the body and and trophies and things like this. That's right. So there was a few... There was a link I had in some of my research. Roger Rogerson's name was coming up that he'd be seen driving around the area. And I thought, he's out of area. He was supposed to be at Bankstown or King's Cross or the city. Why was he down in Wollongong Way? So um, I, back in uh, June 2014, I was told by these two detectives that Detective Dark wanted to see all my emails. And he was in charge of Team 1. He was a link to the St George Police Station. Uh, where I was having to go to uh, at times. And this particular detective also linked into Strike Force Raptor because at that time Raptor was working out of Cogra Police Station. So I didn't think much of it. And then I realised, once I started working on the Cheryl Grimmer case, that Detective Dark was receiving all my emails and he was also a detective that was investigating the Cheryl Grimmer case that fitted the pattern. She vanished. So it was the January 12, 1970, when the Grimmer's world was turned upside down. The wind turned bitterly cold about 1.30 and the mother sent her children to the shower at the nearby change sheds. So the two boys came back and after about 10 minutes, and returned to tell her that Cheryl, who was wearing her blue, royal blue one-piece swimming costume, was still in the men's change room. Now, as you go through, they they make a focus of Cheryl wearing a cosy. But when I went back through the information, by the time people saw her coming out of the toilets and walking towards a man that was in the car park, She was carrying her swimmers and towel in a bundle. Now, all of that information of what she was wearing at that time, no one seems to know. It wasn't reported about. Everyone knows about her blue cosy. Even nearly 50 years later, they're still talking about the blue cosy, but she had it in her hand. Well, that would be a trophy. If that blue cosy turned up in the pink pussycat club, that would be a trophy. Mm-hmm. The, key, 
The kidnapper specified a meeting place for the 10000 reward that he wanted, but did not show up. No more ransom demands were made. So, okay, the ransom note was, you know, it was delivered to a police station. You know, in some of these cases, Roger Rogerson was the one who would get the notes. That's how he could do the arrests, because he really did know who was doing the crimes. That's what I allege. And for those that have been listening to previous episodes of Whistleblowers and other podcasts, you'll know quite well the documented documented story of the highly decorated uh, detective Roger Rogerson and his fall from grace as, uh, you know, what we can expose and find out through the court systems and the media, which is not much really about what activities he was really up to. We have learnt that, you know, he was involved and is going through an appeal process for a conviction for the murdering of a young drug dealer. Uh, but he's always claimed to be squeaky clean. So we'll move on. That's a really interesting case, and if anyone listening has got information about the Cheryl Grimmer story, please contact Crime Stoppers here in New South Wales. Here's the Tegan Lane story, and Studio 10 did an interesting story on this. He was sentenced to 18 years jail after being found guilty of killing her two-day-old daughter, Tegan, in 1996, even though she claimed she gave the baby away to Tegan's father. Now, the child's body has never been found. It's such a baffling case. However, an ABC documentary called Exposed says there's a lot of police evidence that actually wasn't revealed to the defence team, including up to 2,000 phone and listening device Mm. recordings. Investigative reporter Caro Meldrum hanna has been following the case and she joins us now. It's nice to see you. Thank you. Man, listen, there are so many twists and turns when it comes to their eyes. Um, approximately mm-hmm. 94% of the total recordings that were um, that police had mm. were withheld and weren't That's right. over. Mm. That's right. Why? So it, that's the question. Why? Police bugged Kelly Lane's house and they tapped her phones. They were trying to obviously get her on tape when she yeah. thought no one was listening confessing to killing the baby or making some sort of an admission that she'd harmed Tegan, but she never made a confession, never made any admission on all these recordings. Now, So there we've got Caro Meldron-Hanna, very similar to yourself, an investigative journalist, talking about the Kelly Lane story, Jennifer. You mentioned this one as well as being interesting. Yes, well, Kelly Lane's, you know, tried all the avenues to get out of prison and, you know, and said that my child's out there alive. She's been really looking for someone who's alive. Uh, but you started to to go through the Kelly Lane story and I linked to some people that I linked into some of my research. So within the Kelly Lane, there was a taxi driver that took her from the hospital. So Tegan Lane was three days old, but she wore a white suit to a wedding. On that particular day, she was headed to Manly. And... Her father was a retired police officer. So my alarm bells were going, oh, this is a pattern. Uh, Back in 2009, I was told about a club that was in York Street near Wynyard Station and they would sell balloon glasses of this red liquid. I thought the red liquid was red wine back then and it was $20 a glass. And I started to 
think it was a bit weird because this club was just a door and you had to have the secret knock and, you know, they'd only let you in if they knew you. And I started to think, well, where is it? I had even been around Wynyard looking at doors. And then I found a clubhouse that linked into the Hells Angels and it was decked out as though it was Jesus, you know, the Last Supper, had his huge cross, um, it had stainless steel benches and I'm thinking stainless steel benches like surgical operation maybe. And as my research came to the adrenochrome, it started to make me start to think, about the satanic rituals and in my early beginnings the satanic rituals that I learned about as a child growing up was from the story Rosemary's Baby. So I kind of thought that was all false but the more I read and the more I saw I started to think hang on this is real this is a, a hunting machine this is like um, blood baths um, but it was all about the money. You know, uh, to do with um, the Woods Royal Commission, there was a coincidence to Archibald Legal. There was a detective Archibald undercover during the Woods Royal Commission whose parents owned a hotel in Melbourne, Victoria, which was sold, and they hid for two years after the Woods Royal Commission for the threats of being murdered. You know, and you start to think a hotel... You know, like hotels was where they were keeping their guns in their safe and collecting their bags of money for the drug network. I thought, hmm, what's happened there, you know? So Kelly Lane was born in 1975. So that's the same year as when Nita Nelson had died. But people had linked um, being pregnant to having more like adrenaline, being able to be able to be a better swimmer. And was this a reason why Kelly Lane would become pregnant and, you know, allegedly come pregnant? And why wouldn't she bring the child home? And then she made out she dropped it off to the father and the name was Andrew Norris that she gave in. But it could be anyone, you know, like uh, many within the swimming fraternity have been found guilty. Um, Mark Catchpole's one and Scott Miller to do with charges and there was a link to a pill machine and links to rugby union in the wallabies you know so um duncan gillies linked in uh, 1997 and match catch pole 1994 to 1996 so you start to look at the evidence and you think well she really thinks her daughter's alive and who did she leave the child to? And so what you're sort of saying and others are saying as well is that uh, we can't discount or leave out uh, of any of these investigations that there may be some psychiatric uh, phenomenon happening out there within people's minds that there's a black market. Yes. Uh, bodies are going missing and never being found. Police have got nothing to go on or there's maybe protected information mm -hmm. allegedly uh, that... You know, cannibalism, trophy keeping could be alive and well, uh, excuse the pun. Yes, that's right. Uh, but it was interesting that one of the detectives that I link into was an Inspector Grace. And Inspector Grace was on the Kelly Lane case. 
So Grace, the surname, linked into a brothel worker, a prostitute that would hang around King's Cross. She was selling drugs like it was out of fashion. And she'd get escorted home by police to protect her stash of money on the streets of King's Cross. So, And she would go around to other brothels. And I would write to the brothels. One of them was the penthouse brothel. She'd appear every Wednesday. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you know, and you start to think, well, this was just a a cover for a drug network. Yeah, so when you've got drugs involved and you've got people with all kinds of um, crazy, um, you know, psychiatric issues, neuroses, uh, driving, you know, who knows what goes on behind the scenes. Let's hear a little bit more from uh, our detective and crime investigator, Caro Meldrum Hannah. It could be an illegal act they're handing over the child. But then again, how far really is this case known? I go interstate to Melbourne. I was there recently a couple of weeks ago and I was sitting at dinner and the whole the whole table had never heard of Kelly Lane. Wow. They, li- they live in Australia, have always been in Australia. Didn't watch the series, didn't mm. see and it. I suppose yet. assuming this story or that theory is, is true and Andrew Norris or Morris has taken the baby, presumably... To not know what was happening, you'd have to have no contact with Kelly Lane whatsoever. So That's right. We're talking about basically an out-and-out abduct- abduction. So we're assuming that he's not... And a new identity. And a new exactly. identity. So we're assuming he's not exactly a law-abiding or... citizen who says, oh, sorry, this baby I've been raising for the last Here I am now. Here I am now. Okay. Mm. 22 years of age, she'd have a life of her own if alive. So no one will know until she's found dead or alive. So... We're not advocating for for her innocence, Kelly Lane's innocence, but what we do want to know is, is this conviction safe? Was it fair? Because when we... So, Jennifer? Okay. They're they're looking at the main theory of Tegan Lane being alive. I actually emailed all my research to this uh, reporter. I'm I'm quite open about sharing my research because the, the links to King's Cross seem to keep popping up within the crimes. Uh, she told me that she's alive. Her main thing was Kelly Lane keeps telling her she's alive. So that's what she was looking for. She wasn't thinking that there were satanic rituals happening and not even thinking it strange that someone back in... Um, oh, when did, when did Kelly oh. Lane go missing? What year? Uh, that wearing a white trouser outfit to a wedding... You know, people didn't wear white to a wedding. And the wedding was in a church. It was in the middle of Manly. So she dropped this child off from having the child in the hospital and a man helped her get to the hospital and then vanish. You know, you start to think that, you know, why would he vanish? Why wasn't he there? Why didn't the parents know about all this? Yes, and there are some secret recordings of telephone conversations that we can access that are in the police released material, but a lot of material hasn't been released. So, you know, we may never know, but let's hope, we live in hope that we do find out what happened in that story. So until then, who knows? But if you're concerned that uh, what we're saying here doesn't happen, have a listen to this story about a different cannibal and Jennifer's comparison to red wine. If you saw him in the street, he wouldn't rate a second glance. He looks so ordinary, but he's not. Armand Mivas is a cannibal. In March 2001, he killed a man and ate him 
along with a glass of fine red wine. A crime so bizarre it horrified and mystified the world. You see, Midas's victim was a willing accomplice. He actually wanted to be eaten. A rare case of what they call love cannibalism. Now you're... So... It exists, you know, we can see that over the centuries there's been a lot of this sort of... But I think modern society doesn't want to open their mind. Like they said there in the Studio 10 interview on the Kelly Lane case, people have saying that they've never heard of Kelly Lane, etc. But when the word cannibalism comes up, it almost feels to the person on the street that, oh, that doesn't happen, it's just a mythical thing, you know, it doesn't happen. But the cannibal club, it comes back to what you were saying before. Well, at the Cannibal Club in 1863. Remember, uh, this gang links back, I linked it back to 1860 in King's Cross. And we have the New South Wales Police, the finest of criminals, was started in 1862. So we've got to remember that Australia was built on a criminal system. And this system, how the police just dismiss everything. So under the Act, and what I got told by numerous police when I complained to the police professional standards, that it links into under Section 141A of the Police Act, the police have the ability to stop any investigation. So do they stop it to protect something? Well, there you go. You mentioned before, I don't think we've already talked about this, we said that the human flesh, I've never eaten any, uh, but maybe after this episode we can go and find a restaurant that sells human flesh. But you were saying that the um, human flesh is very similar to pork. pork. Yes. So the human flesh, so there's a club uh, called the Cannibal Club. You can Google about it. Some say it's a hoax, but some say it's real. And they serve human flesh. Now, they were even given a licence to serve human flesh in New York. So it says, isn't cannibalism wrong? This is on their website. Cannibalism as traditionally practised, usually shows respect to the deceased who is desired to be reborn into the living or offered as a worthy sacrifice to some deity. So it links to uh, the drinking of the blood, the adrenochrome is the stem cells. Now they're saying, are there diseases? Yes, there is a disease people can catch. If the blood is fed into our bloodstream, and it's called graft versus host disease if the person is not matching. So that links to the blood tots. But just to drink the blood, I don't believe that the graft versus host disease comes up. And you mentioned also the uh, link between organised crime and abattoirs and things like this. Yes, well, we've got uh, Paul Keating had the pig farm. We had Robert Trimboli here have, have a you know, meat processing lab. Uh, There are links in Canada to a man who got charged. Uh, Pickford is his surname, and he had a pig farm. You know, but the pig farms were a link that I got told about way back when I was listening and learning about this cannibalism behaviour. 
Mackay's alleged involvement in the disappearance of anti-marijuana campaigner Donald Mackay and involvement in drug trafficking in the Griffith, New South Wales area, led to a royal commission, a coroner's inquest and an international chase by the Australian government seeking his arrest and capture after his escape to Ireland. So his bodies can be... Eaten. Disappeared. The bones. You know, shredded, munched up. Much the same way as Catherine the Cannibal did with her yeah. kids. Yeah. Wow. That's right. And, and Catherine was one of the first stories that I got told about in 2011 that this lady came to me to explain it. But this lady, as I learnt, her name was Patricia, had actually spent some time in the same prison and she knew how feared people were of her within the prison system. You know, and that fear is something that I've noticed within the gangs. They seem to have a, a fear to others that they can be get, get at in prison. So then they all treat them like royalty, like with this respect of the underworld because they're in this elite within the gang system. You know, and, and the crimes are, are unravelling, but remember the police just stop it and that protects the whole system. You know, like I was in King's Cross and that's what the the detective said to me, no, we can stop this under 141A. Do you know I brought that up before many judges in in courts to say this is wrong, this part of the law... On an unsolved missing person, we should be able to go till there are no leads, not just stop an investigation. Well, for Cheryl Grimmer, they've reopened the case at a homicide level, but that's taken a lot of research to get there. Very good. So an interesting topic here today and uh, one that I'm sure is probably shocking you and others uh, as we listen to Jennifer and some of the horrific cases from around the world to do with cannibalism. But more uh, familiar stories here in Australia. And confessions of people have been made. And uh, ABC reports a, a book about the ultimate taboo, at least in Western culture. Uh, a zoologist and academic, Bill Shute, author of Eat Me, a natural and unnatural history of cannibalism. He is fascinated by cannibalism and specifically our feelings towards it. He argues that despite our revulsion uh, to cannibalism has been remarkably widespread, as Jennifer's saying, throughout history. Uh, so much so that he's written a whole book on the subject and... Uh, you know, it is a taboo in Australian society. It is a taboo in many societies worldwide. Uh, but it's the subject of, you know, Hollywood movies and things where people want to consider it. Maybe it did happen. But uh, who's, who's, you know, me to say that it doesn't go on today. But Jennifer Stone, do you want to add anything else about it? Well, for the movie side, they just say it's a novel and that protects them. And that's what judges declare of the King's Cross Sting. It's just a novel. 
but we've had many arrests so you start to think well are the patterns that are found the coincidences start to build a case and should the police further investigate i hope so well, when you are either going to die of starvation or your children are going to die of starvation or you are going to eat the dead, then most people are going to eat the dead. Uh, in the West, many children grow up with the fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel, where being eaten was the most or the worst imaginable fate. But there are other cultures where cannibalism has been part of life. For example, Brazil, they believe that eating your dead allowed you to incorporate their soul into your body. In the Old Testament, as Jennifer's mentioned, the behaviour was undertaken by starving inhabitants of the besieged city of Jerusalem and Samaria. So if you can call someone a cannibal, then you, you can do anything you want to them. So despite this tradition, cannibalism has primarily become equated with primitivism among Western cultures. That's right. That's right. And this is a, a gang that links back. You know, the oldest missing person we have is Jesus Christ, 33 AD. And if we found his bones, we'd solve the problem. For those that are interested in this subject, please go to Netflix and I urge you to watch the series Hannibal the Cannibal. And we love that movie Hannibal of Hannibal Lecter. And it really portrays exactly what Jennifer's talking about today. And I'll just end with this statement uh, from the writer of this book, uh, Mr. Shute. He says he's tried human flesh himself, all in the name of research. It clearly tasted like organ meat if you have ever eaten kidney or liver. It had the consistency of veal, he said. It was delicious. So we'll leave you there, folks. This has been a meat-eating version of Whistleblowers. Jennifer, thanks for being with us today. Do you want to end with anything? Oh, we've got the vow lifting for the spirits. They'll come back for some karma. You know, it's Halloween tonight. We'll let you go now with the music from the Hannibal series. Hannibal the Cannibal. My name's Greg Kerr, and we'll see you next week for another episode of Whistleblowers. Please like us on Twitter, our Instagram site, Facebook.